Yeah. I think it's really important before we listen to this episode to realise the context that we're in at the moment. Um, if we're emergency clinicians, we're basically stuck in PPE all day. Um, we, we find it hard to communicate with our patients and interact with our patients. And then we're basically going straight home. We don't have that um, relief going other places. Um, also in the sense that this episode we're talking about things like depression, anxiety. So I always want to put a little caveat out there. You may be going through some of that stuff yourself. Um, or you may have family members or friends who have been through this sort of stuff. And it's real. I think it's not talked about enough. Um, this episode is meant to help us um, understand different mental health presentations. But also be aware of it ourselves and to be mindful of it ourselves. Um, when we listen to it. Um, so make sure you're in the right mindset before you listen to it. Um, if not, just pause it and maybe come to it another day. Um, so we're going to crack an episode. We're talking to Benny in relation to mental health presentations. Let's crack in. Cheers. So um, welcome to the podcast. This week I'm chatting with Benny. Welcome, Benny. You. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Mate. Um, it's, it's been a long time coming. <laughs> mate, I'll tell you what, these bloody lockdowns have been, oh. been doing my head in. Tell me about it. Tell me about it. chat with you. Now, the reason I've been wanting to chat with you, um, we are talking about mental health um, and we're pumped to have you here because, dude, you're the guru when it comes to this sort of stuff. Um, (laughs) I'm calling you the guru at the moment. Thanks. (laughs) And we'll understand that a bit more now. Um, Benny, mental health, why 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 did you jump into mental health, Benny? Look, to be totally honest with you, I didn't want to. Um, so when I was, you know, at nursing, doing nursing at uni, I kind of actively avoided any thoughts of wanting to do mental health. I, <laughs> it, it scared me. Like, in, no, scared me is the wrong word. It terrified me. <laughs> and I think it comes down to, to the stigma around it. I, I mean, you hear mental health people think, you know, aggression, nurses getting hurt, just mm. kind of you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah. And I tell you, I actively avoided it. I was like paediatrics all the way. Yep. Okay, peds, yeah. And yep. Yeah. Until I did a mental health placement at Roselle Hospital. Okay. So the old Callan Park. Yep. Why did and that change you? Look, I think it was actually experiencing it firsthand. I think, again, like mental health was never something that I had dealt with kind of on an acute level personally, like everyone has their ups and downs. I didn't have friends or family with kind of major mental health problems, so I was not exposed to it. Yeah. And it wasn't until I got to that first placement and it was after day one, I remember walking out just thinking, damn it, mm. like, I really enjoy this. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, I mean, I guess the thing is, is what, what I love about it mm. is that I see people on what is potentially like their rock bottom, their yep. worst, the worst that they're going to feel. And if I can do something to make them feel just a little bit better, if mm. they, if I can walk away from that conversation and they are feeling a bit better, mm. then that's like, that's the goal. That's, and that's incredible. And I love that. Yep. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of what that's brought me there. It, it takes a special person to do mental health. Um, and especially in ED, um, what kind of stuff, what's your job at the moment? So what are you employed as at the moment? So at the moment I'm employed as a transitional nurse practitioner. Yep. So I am in mental health. Yeah. So I'm part of a team of, I think there's about eight of us now. Yep. 
Um, and we cover the community, the assessment unit. So just a bit about myself, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. hit me up. I work at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. Yep. Um, I cover RPAED, the inpatient psychiatric unit, mm -hmm. and then the acute care service in the community. Yep. So we are spread across all those areas um, and are kind of assessing people coming into the or presenting to all of those services yep. um, in an attempt to keep them out of hospital, provide them with treatment, and then refer them on to services longitudinally. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So transition. I'm transitional nurse practitioner um, yep. as I'm still studying. So I'm at Sydney University now, coming into my third year. Um, so I'll be finished soon. And then that's when you become kind of endorsed to be a nurse practitioner, well, fully yeah. fledged. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, I know a bit about the ED pathway for nurse practitioners. Yeah. People in mental health, you have to do a, a fair bit of hours as well in mental health to get endorsed. Yeah. So it works at, so you have to have five years experience um, working in a particular field. So I've um, got the five years in acute care. Um, and you need to have a, another master's degree. So I've got a master's in mental health nursing right. um, with the University of Newcastle, and then I've also yep. gone and done a graduate certificate in emergency care. Right. Um, yeah, and then now the master's of nurse practitioner. Mate, you're just racking up the degrees, mate. Oh, and the, <laughs> and the next step. <laughs> <laughs> no one talks about the next step until you're paying tax at the end of the year, and you're like, that's it. You're kidding me, mate. I've got to pay this thing off. Yeah. Oh, it's a punish, but no, worth it in the end. So it's good here. Yeah. Um, so no, it's really interesting. Like in the ED, I think this is the first time I've actually worked in the ED. Okay, cool. Um, I have before this had been kind of strictly in the community um, as a CNS, um, which the role is similar, kind of going out and seeing people in their homes. Um, but I guess now as a TMP, I've got a lot more autonomy yep. um, and I'm making kind of bigger decisions. Okay. Um, yeah, so, but what I've done- What kind of decisions do you get to make as a TMP? So like, let's say as CNS, you'll, do you get to like, schedule stuff or is it is it medications, that sort of stuff? Yeah, so as a TMP, I can, um, I guess recommend medications. It needs right. to all be done under the a consultant psychiatrist. Yep. Um, so I do have to make those calls. And I guess where it's different to a phone order is I can kind of start a regular medication. Great. So I can call a consultant and say, I've seen this person. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're presenting with some mild psychotic symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, they're medication naive, they've not been on anything before. Mm -hmm. um, they're quite distressed at the moment. Mm -hmm. I think they need to be started on five of olanzapine. Mm -hmm. We'll give it to them a stat dose now, tell them to take another one, and I'm going to review them again in two days, mm -hmm. and we'll review that medication then. Great. So that's um, yeah. Where with a phone order, you kind of need to call up each time. It needs to be the same. Yeah. And they recognise your learning and experience as a transitional nurse practitioner with the years of study to understand the medications, how they work, how they interact. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's always a, a long conversation with the consultants. It's never a, a brief conversation. It's... No, not, at all. not at all. Who does have a brief one? Yeah. Um, at the moment, we know 
this current environment in COVID. Our, we're both in New South Wales. I mean, you're hanging in, in Newtown, I'm hanging down the coast. Um, there's been a huge impact on mental health. Um, have you seen that as a clinician? Absolutely. It's, um, oh, I guess it's, it's interesting. So on one hand, we have never been busier. Mm. Um, but then on the other hand, it's not, I mean, the ED itself isn't as busy, yeah. but we're seeing significantly more mental health patients coming through or people with mental health issues coming through. Okay. Um, and it's just, I mean, the impacts that COVID has had on people's well-being is just mm. huge. I mean, staying at home, being told you can't leave, yeah. people losing their jobs. And I think that's, the, that's a lot of the, the things that we're seeing now are more social issues, mm. um, which are dif is difficult because you don't want to pathologise what is a normal human response to an awful situation. Mm. Um, which is it makes the job harder because you see these people coming through and you kind of think, you know, a 40-year-old person who has otherwise been a mentally healthy person their entire life, mm. it's very much situational what's going on now and you don't want to kind of have them walk out of the hospital thinking, oh, God, I've got depression and I'm going to be with this for the rest of my life. It's, yeah. it's been able to kind of speak to that person and be like, look, like normalise it. Yes. Like you are going through what the rest of the population is going through. Mm. This is a normal response. Let's, you know, get you some help now so that in six months' time you're good to go. Like it's... And so. to be a mental health nurse, I would imagine you need some sort of patience um, because you just can't rattle off, you know, because, you know, ED, I know yeah. nurses and doctors, sometimes we can be very much like oh come on you know but you guys are very patient um and first some structure out there we're going to run through a few different presentations we're going to run yeah. through some drug-induced psychosis a bit of suicidal ideation um we're going to run through some organic illnesses and non-organic stuff some depression and maybe some personality disorders and how we treat them and manage them in the ed yeah um, when you get called to a patient um what what do you automatically want to know as a clinician because normally you get so, from ED or somewhere that you're going to see a patient. What do you want to know as a clinician? Yeah. So I guess mainly present the, the things that I need to know that would be presenting problem. Why are they there? Yeah. Have they come in for you know, chest pain and during their cardiac assessment, have they said, I also feel depressed? Yeah. Um, is the, or is the primary reason that they're presented to the emergency department that day for a, a mental health specific issue? Um, and I guess what that issue is, because if I've got four people to go and see, mm. I need to be able to prioritise to think, okay, well, I've got someone that's come in with police who's acutely psychotic and they're currently handcuffed to a bed. Yes. Um, taking up, you know, a precious res resource in recess and, you know, need a one-to-one -one special. Yep. Or as this person self-presented because they're feeling low and they didn't know where else to go. Yeah. Um, so that would then allow me to kind of, on my way to recess, yep. stop by that other person and introduce myself, let them know that I'm here, let them know that I'm here to help and I guess trying to alleviate some of that anxiety because, I mean, as you would know, EDs are not 
the most conducive to calm. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> yeah. Mate, buzzers, yeah, like you know, everyone yelling at the top of their voice. It's not a calm environment. Alarms going off, yeah. monitors going off. That makes yeah, me, <laughs> makes me anxious. Yeah, that's it. Like, <laughs> so okay. yeah, so I'll make sure that I, that they know that I'm there. Yep. Um, and I try and be as transparent and as candid as possible. Like more often than not, they can hear the person screaming, yep. and I'm like, look, unfortunately, I've got to go deal with that, but I'll be back. Yeah. Um, I guess we'll first talk about drugs, um, drug-induced psychosis. Do you see a lot of patients with drug-induced psychosis? What, what, what do you reckon is your sort of estimate? Every of day. Every day. If, I, if, if, if they were to cure the ice crisis, yep. I'd be out of a job. <laughs> it's, oh, look, I, it's insane. Like it's, and I think the thing is people don't realise just the impacts that it has on everyone in that person's life. Mm. and everyone they come into contact with. But drug-induced psychosis I would see daily, and it's from, you know, people that have smoked pot for too long yep. um, to people that have used bad G yep. um, or ice. I mean, ice is just kind of unstoppable when it comes to, to mental health and ED presentations. You just, because they are so chaotic just out of control is that ice do they normally smoke it inject it what do you find most commonly as a mental health uh most commonly it's smoked um particularly by the younger crowd you do get some of the the older kind of generations particularly people it's a weird transition but people that would would otherwise be using heroin appear to be kind of injecting ice um and it's been my experience that it doesn't matter how it gets into the body, it's the outcome is the same. I mean, looking at comparing, I guess, a drug-induced psychosis to someone with an organic psychosis, yes. typically I'd find that you, or you would find that people coming in on drugs yep. are generally a lot more disorganised, a lot more kind of chaotic. Um, where I find people, while people with organic psychosis can also be disorganised, it's been my experience that it's nowhere near to the level of someone that has kind of artificially amped up their serotonin levels to through the roof. It's typically like you look if you're looking at their physical obs, their you know blood pressure's high, their heart rate's high, resp rates are high, their pupils are just like pinpoint in terms of like disorganized like disorganized thoughts they co- they often can't account for where they've been yep. which during now this covid pandemic is very frustrating yeah, hard for you. i can see that <laughs> when it comes to kind of what kind of covid pathway they're to go on so typically i think at this point every mental health patient coming into an ed is considered hot okay. until they're proven otherwise um just for that kind of poor historian and a generally aggression you will find comes from people who are intoxicated versus people who have got an organic illness and even pot okay i mean you're seeing people come in who have been smoking pot for years and i mean i tell people patients all the time like pot's one of those drugs that is fine until it's not fine yeah 100 percent Yep. So 
you know, people are like, oh, I need my pot to smoke, uh, smoke pot to sleep. And it gets to the point where they're now no longer sleeping. Yeah. Okay. They're paranoid. It's, and it's, and it just kind of happens. It, there's no real slow burn with it. It's, yeah. it's fine. And then it's just not. When you notice the drug induced psychosis presentations, you said things like disorganized thoughts. Um, are you making a, an observation of what they look like physically? Um, uh, in terms of like thoughts and what they're saying, what do you, when you're assessing them, what are you thinking about when they're saying things that are like, you know, out there? Out there. I mean, I guess it's hard. You got to try and kind of reality base it a bit to find out what it is exactly that they're going, um, they're kind of talking about. More often than not, it's, I mean, it's difficult to ascertain, especially for a new person coming in if you've got an un, un, an unknown patient yes. with yes. an unknown history um then you need to kind of go through the whole the whole thing and trying to do a full mental health assessment with someone who is not making any sense yep. is very very difficult yep. um, and it's at that point that you kind of medicate them until they've they've calmed down and I mean, we talked about before draperidol and yeah. dropping people, as they say. We seem bad, don't we? We want to avoid, you know, we do want to avoid, um, you know, causing harm to our patients that have come with mental health problems. We do want to do what's best for them. There are times when we, and we'll talk about this later, where we intervene, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, one thing I want to say, patients that come in via ambulance, patients can be scheduled and sectioned. How does that work? Um, just for people out there, how does yeah. it, what is the section? What is the schedule? How does that work? Yeah, so I um, am an accredited person under the Mental Health Act. So um, I can schedule people under Section 19 of the Mental Health Act. Um, as, as well, police can schedule people under Section 22 of the Mental Health Act and then ambulance are under Section 20. Um, so I guess it comes down to like mentally ill and mentally disordered. Mm-hmm. Um, so mentally disordered kind of covers people that you know don't or you don't know if they've got a formal diagnosis and they're at essentially it's kind of quite broad and it's if they're at risk of harm to themselves or others. Okay. Um, if you, and that's, yeah, so mentally disordered and they're mentally ill as if someone's got an, a, an illness. So you see someone who's got, you know, a diagnosis of schizophrenia and then that you can kind of work it in a, they're having a, an acute relapse of their existing mental illness they're at risk of harm to themselves or others mm-hmm. um unfortunately things like continuing condition and like risk of further deterioration aren't i know other states have got those kind of clauses in their mental health act where you can detain someone because they're at risk of deteriorating further Um, in new south wales we can't do that at the moment Um, but typically if someone is at risk of deteriorating further there are enough risks present to at least to detain them for containment purposes and further observation what's also pretty relevant at the moment is actually a section 62 which is being used extensively at the moment Um, and what we're seeing um, is that there are a lot of patients out there with mental health issues who um, have COVID-19 and are coming into hospitals. Um, and you can actually be now scheduled under the Mental Health Act 62 um, if you are 
potentially COVID positive um, and you're not abiding by public health, um, you know, laws, which I think is important to know that there are these other sections out there. I think it's also sad is that there's um, plenty of people out there in the community that have mental health problems um, and, you know, trying to put them in a room, an isolation room, um, is going to be really, really tough. So I think it's a really um, hard situation at the moment. We've got entire wards at some hospitals that have mental health wards that actually have um, an extensive amount of patients that have COVID. Um, so I think it's a really hard juggling act. Um, and it's just really important to be aware of what's happening in this current age. Um, and also these patients, um, you know, in, in the community where they're normally having someone to c come and see them, human contact is being diminished. Um, and we have, they're having to do phone consults and all things that are really hard. So I think it's really important to understand the context we're in now. That's good to yeah. know. So I think that's important for us to know how they came in, whether they sexual schedule, you know, scheduled. You can, yeah. And generally, if that's been done by police or ambulance, who can lift that generally, that schedule or section? So it has to be a doctor. Yep. So a schedule, so I can write a schedule, but I can't lift one. Um, so if someone comes in under schedule, so if I was to schedule someone in the community and bring them into the emergency department, they would need to be seen then by a doctor. If that doctor then deems that they need to stay in hospital, then they'll have to write a form one. Yep. Um, then that form one is written and that means that that person is there um, until they then see a doctor the following day. So at that point, the schedule can be lifted or that if that second doctor, the second person that sees them thinks, no, they don't need to be here, they can go home, then they can lift that schedule and send them home. What are some yeah. organic causes we're looking for for psychosis? Oh, see, it's really tough and the literature's out on it. Um, so in terms of first episode psychosis, they kind of look at uh, some like CT brain is yep. a... Um, like a, an investigation that you would do on someone that you suspect as a first episode psychosis. Cool. However, the, I mean, I think it's something ridiculous. Like if you were to do a CT brain on seven people, you'd find abnormalities in at least one of them. Like, yeah. <laughs> so it's not a really good indicator of, um, whether or not that person has got, an, I guess, an organic psychosis. Yeah. Um, but I guess what you can take into it would be kind of family history. Okay. Yep. So you take, you take a detailed family history and look at, okay, well, this you know, person's father had schizophrenia and they talk about, a, you know, an uncle who was a bit weird, but they don't know anything. Mm. You can kind of deduce that, there is a possibility that um, this person has got a mental illness um, or a psychosis. Um, as well, I, I mean, people are, what I've noticed, surprisingly honest when it comes to whether or not they've used drugs. Yeah. Um, so, but again, like a UDS, if someone comes in and they're, you know, grandiose, they're kind of bizarre, thought disordered. Yep kind of talking about hearing voices, things like that, and their UDS comes back clear, you can kind of generally safely say that they're unfortunately got a mental illness that, that isn't drug-induced. Yeah, yeah. Because um, a lot of them are drug-induced commonly. And we yeah. do like, your bloods and stuff too, like all your blood works. Yeah. 
they wouldn't say that they're all normal, not a weird sodium level or something that's causing some sort of psychosis. Yeah, look, I mean, in terms of true psychosis, like sodium levels and, um, I mean, we do, like, we'll always do full bloods, like TFTs, LFTs, everything. Um, illnesses like kind of Hashimoto's yeah. um, and kind of like hypothyroidism can often present with people appearing to be manic. Yes. Um, but that will resolve once their thyroxine levels are sorted out. Yeah, yeah, um, sodium as well can cause kind of confusion in people. Um, but again, like once all of those, so if their bloods come back and there are some abnormalities, those abnormalities are rectified and they remain kind of unwell. Yes. Then that's when we look at kind of introducing kind of other, I guess, antipsychotics to see if that, is, that aids in resolving. Yep. Yeah, and all those can be emergency, you know, thyrotoxicosis or, or you know, yeah. like, you know, pretty serious things. We sort that out first. Not yeah. that the mental health's not serious, but no, absolutely. Well, you know, <laughs> a psychosis isn't going to kill you if you're in an emergency department. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do remember seeing a patient before who we thought was acutely confused. They thought he was psychotic, um, and his sodium was 113. Um, bloods on him. Moving to but it was just that you know the stigma yeah. that is around mental health. Do you ask that, people flat out about drugs because you've mentioned it? Um, when do you ask them? Do that? Do you use um, drugs? Do you use alcohol? How do you ask that question? How would you phrase that question? Look, I kind of uh, there are some people that you. It's it's interesting, I, and I kind of phrase it differently depending on who it is. I'll often, if you see someone who is kind of i guess young people and they're there with their parents mm. i kind of phrase it as you know these are questions we have to ask everyone yep. um have you used any drugs yep. um i guess as well being in the community um we often people kind of associate us weirdly with the police yeah and they think that if they tell us that we're then going to go and tell the police so we've all, i'll always make sure that they know like look, mate, this is between you and I. Yeah. It, I'm not going to go and tell the police. Like, unless you pull out, you know, four kilos of heroin. Yeah. And look, as I said, people are really surprisingly open and honest with it. Um, with alcohol, alcohol's interesting, I guess, generally, people will always underestimate how much they drink. Yes. Um, so I always find it's a, a good way to kind of get a, a better understanding is to, I guess, normalise drinking large amounts. So asking someone like, oh, how much do you drink? And they'll kind of sit there umming and ahhing and I'll just say, you know, two cases a day. Yeah. And they were like, oh, no, just 12 beers. And you're like, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So okay. If, if, if these people, if they think that, you know, someone out there, people out there are drinking two cases a day, then they'll happily tell you that they drink 12 beers a day. Yep. Um, so it's just kind of like reading, I guess, reading the room, kind of seeing how that person is. If they're quite guarded, um, then it makes it difficult. Yeah. There's certainly a time and a place to get collateral from a husband or a wife. Um, mm. But I guess in that immediate kind of setting, I want to hear it straight from the horse's mouth. I want I want to find out why they think they're there too. Yep. 
often I'll already know why they're there. It's mm. always interesting to find out why they think they're there because it can often be two totally different things. Yeah, that's true. You know, someone that's, that's had a, you know, a belt around their neck and they've tried to hang themselves and they'll come in and you'll, I'll know that and I'll ask them why they think they're there and I'll be like, oh, because my mood's been a bit down. It's like, has been, but you're certainly, you know, minimising that. It's a, yeah. a massive over oversimplification of what's going on at the moment. Yeah, and they would um, appreciate that you're being real with them as well and not sugarcoating. Yeah, and that's it. Like I think uh, what I've noticed over the years is that the more candid you are, then the easier it is to get that information from them and the quicker they get the help they need. Okay. Um, and that's what I'll always say. It's like, look, you can... You don't have to tell me, mm. but if you don't tell me, then we can't help you. Yep. And if we can't help you, then you're going to be sitting here in rafts next to a crying baby. Like it's... Yeah. yeah. Um, so... What, what's your management generally for these patients? So the, the Cisco drug-induced psychosis, so we get someone in drug-induced psychosis. I always find it hard sometimes. I'm like, sometimes they get admitted and other times I'm like, they're sending him home now, <laughs> you know, the mind boggle. What are the ones yeah. you want to send home? What are the ones you want to keep? Um, so oh, I think it comes down to a myriad of things. The time of day that they're brought in. Yep. Um, so it's, I mean, you would know it's so much easier to discharge people home if it's kind of before 8 p.m. Yep. <laughs> um, but also what their history is. So if you can get a hit, if they've already got a history on EMR and you know that this is the third time they've presented to ED with the exact same thing, um, I guess it's a lot safer to send them home as well. Kind of what they're, what they're saying, you know, there's people come in and they're acutely intoxicated and they're saying they're going to kill themselves. Then it's about trying to kind of, ascertain whether or not that's legitimate yeah they come in acutely intoxicated and they're kind of talking about you know the queen being immortal yeah the risks associated with that are lower than the risks associated with someone saying they're going to harm themselves or someone else yeah um and more often than not drug-induced psychosis will resolve pretty quickly with an antipsychotic. So, um, I mean, we talked about droperidol before. It's not traditionally an antipsychotic, but it will, I guess, kind of bomb them out enough for them to get some sleep, for their body to process the the drugs, and they'll wake up and they'll be relatively kind of coherent and normal. Yep. You can ascertain that history, and I'll be like, no, the queen is definitely not immortal. Yeah. I'm going home. Um, but I, I mean, I guess essentially, again, it comes down to those risks and whether or not you feel comfortable in your assessment that you've done, or even if you can do an assessment. Yep. So m majority of the people I find that do get admitted are either on nights because they they can't safely discharge someone home after hours um, or you can't obtain a history from them. It's more Im immediate stuff too. Like if someone, if this guy says, you know, I'm going to go home and, you know, the queen is dead. It's like, well, do you have any plans to do that? Like how, do you have a means to do that? Like no, no, and no. It's like, okay, well, like 
you can go. Whereas if someone comes in and they're talking about, you know, I have had it up to here with my dad mm. and I'm going to go home and I'm going to kill him, it's like, well, they, the patient lives with the father. Mm. There's certain, like there's access to the person. Do they have means? Well, I mean, you can, sure, they could. Um, am I confident enough to send them home and hope that they don't do it? Absolutely not. Yeah. They can stay. So, do you have like an instinct, like in nursing, we talk about that gut instinct where you go into a room. For me, I go into the room and and I, and I get this sense of like something doesn't fit here. Like I, I, you know, they'll be like, you know, for me, it, it could be a kid that I go and see, and then suddenly I'm like, mm, something doesn't add up here. I, I feel a bit of a weird vibe. Do you get that? As yeah, a absolutely. Yeah, and I mean that comes with time and experience, as with all nursing, and it's not until you see kind of other where you see that same presentation over and over again and you can kind of piece together what's going on a bit better um but yeah there's for sure some people and it's never the people that say they're going to do things it's always the people that come in and say they're not going to do anything and but then again if i sit down with someone for an extended period of time i mean it happens all the time people come in because then you know their partners called the police or the ambulance because they've expressed suicidal ideation yeah and the police turn up the police have got a very low threshold for anyone threatening suicide so they get you know section 22 brought to the ed you sit down and speak with them and they're mortified they're just like oh my gosh that was a huge misunderstanding <laughs> that got taken out of context it didn't yeah um and you know they'll say look i'm certainly not going to harm myself yeah. that was dumb i shouldn't have said it you know i had too many glasses of wine mm. i just want to go home and they'll go home and you'll never see them again so it's, it's, i mean it's very much contextual and what the situation is yeah. at that time so do you admit a lot of people into your mental health unit um look i try not to i i mean obviously there are some people where you have no choice yep um, and your hands are tied but I think so. I'm in a really unique position where I can see someone in the ED, but because I also work in the community, mm. I can say to that person, come in and see me in two days yep. to the health centre across the road, where a lot of other people can't do that. You know, the psych reg is working in the ED, they work exclusively like CL. I mean, I'm a, such a huge advocate for people being treated at home. Mm. I just think, I mean, as we said before, EDs are hectic. I don't know if you've ever been on a psych unit before, but they're, you know, they serve their purpose, yes, but it's not somewhere you want to be if you don't have to be. Yeah, okay. And if someone's got a good support network, well, not even a good support network, just a support network at home. They're better in it. They're better in their home. And, you know, outcomes are significantly better for people treated at home. Mm. Um, and, I mean, as I said, there are certainly conditions that can't be treated at home. I don't think that uh, we've ever successfully treated someone with a true mania at home. Yeah. Um, the risks associated with mania are just too kind of high because they're, I mean, you see people with manic episodes who have, you know, spent a hundred grand, cheated on their partners, you know, sold a home, bought a boat, and you just think, my gosh, you've done that in two weeks. Like, you can't. <laughs> You ever sit there and just go, this can't be right, like surely, and then it adds up and you're like, bloody hell. 
Yeah, I remember as, uh, this one woman I had seen and she was kind of telling me all this stuff. She said she'd bought a car and that she was going on holidays and it was fine and she didn't need anything. And mania is really interesting, I find, because people can, I, I find myself even doing it too. I'm like, but spending money is not that bad. Like, you know, I bought new shoes the other day. I did this and then you kind of minimise it yourself and then you kind of take a step back and look at it and just think, my God, like I'm standing in Department of Housing and this woman is telling me that she has just spent, you know, like four grand on a car. It's like she can't afford that. That's, <laughs> And it's not until you actually look at it and kind of just think, well, what are you going to do with that car? She's like, I'm going to drive it. And you're like, but you don't have a driver's licence. It's like, well, I'll get my licence. It's like, oh, and that's those kind of things where you just think, like, we, we can't treat this in the community. It's not safe um, because, you know, while there's risks of, well, I'm, the main risk there is a risk to our reputation, risk of harm to herself, really, what, not physical harm, but kind of like longitudinal financial and emotional harm. Um, now, Benny, we want to talk about men's mental health because we talked a little bit about the stigma in mental health. Um, and you said it's huge in the male population. What do you notice um, in terms of men's mental health? What I, one of the biggest things I notice is that the men typically present with mental health problems when it's, a, when it's crisis mode. Okay, yep. So I think it comes down to that whole like stoic traditional stoic nature of men where they don't talk about their problems it's it's in, it's funny the the team that i work on where i called the crisis team yet i always tell people to never call me when they're in crisis because it makes it so much harder for them and you just think like call us before it's a crisis because then we can help you yeah. no that's great isn't um, it? call me earlier rather than later yeah. yeah and i think that's what the message we need to get out there for men is that like you know, the whole, it's okay to not be okay. And I mean, as I said before, it's all well and good to say that as someone who's not suffering from depression. But I mean, I guess you need to like check on your mates. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's true. It's before that, isn't it? It's like, it's okay to not be okay. Yeah. But what are you going to do about that? Like I, yeah. my, my, my statement at the end of that is it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. Yeah, exactly. I don't want people staying in that space. I want them getting yeah. help or being referred on or addressing it early. Yeah, that's it. Like, even if I'm not the one to help you, at yeah. least tell me that, okay, so that I can do something to try and get someone else to help you. Okay. Yeah, it's good. It's, um, you know, like, you know, are you okay day? It's like, yep, that's one day out of 365 <laughs> days. <laughs> we ask people every other day. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, what are we doing on the other days, people? Can we get onto that? It's yeah, that um, makes it hard. Do you, yeah. Find that, do you find yourself as a mental health nurse? Does it make it hard? Like, you know, I'm a pretty positive person. I like to be around positive people that give me the vibes. Yeah. Um, that pump me up. How do you cope? Like, you you would see some people that are pretty depressed and have a reason to be depressed. Yeah. Or anxious or or you know suicidal or. Yeah. Look, full disclosure, um, I, for quite some time, didn't deal with it very well. Mm. Like I, you know, would be like getting terrible sleep and 
you know, going out with mates on the weekends or on my days off and doing exactly what I was telling people not to do, you know, having 12 beers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and, mm. I mean, as I mentioned before, um, we started recording. I'm currently training for a half Ironman, which yeah. exercise has been an absolute godsend. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. and I think it's about trying to, you know, firstly, look after your own mental health by doing the right things, you know, eating healthy, exercising. But also I have, I tell, talk to people about kind of like DBT and CBT a lot. What's that? Um, so dialectical behaviour therapy and cognitive behaviour therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're psychological uh, techniques that, or psychological services, I guess, because they kind of employ them long term mm-hmm. to help you kind of change the way you think about certain situations to help identify early warning signs, to help you deal with things when you become kind of, a bit, I guess, emotionally unstable. Um, and for years I would talk to people about these things but not actually do them myself. Okay. And Can then, anyone do them? Yeah. Um, so if you Google like CBT techniques or DBT techniques, it, I mean, they're, they're not the easiest things to do. And that's the thing. They're really hard. Yeah. 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 Um, but they really work. So okay. I'll put in the show notes as well at the end of the podcast. Yeah. We'll look at on how they can. Yeah. Go awesome. down how do they send you some, yeah, send me some links and do they help in yeah. terms of giving you clarity or dealing with dealing with stuff it's not so much clarity it's more dealing with stuff so it's more being able to recognize that you're starting to to kind of feel i guess off yeah so like i find as a nurse doing or kind of learning about cognitive behavior therapy has really i mean i guess it's designed to kind of help change negative thoughts and kind of change patterns of behaviour, essentially, um, which works really well for people who kind of experience suicidal ideation and self-harm ideation. Yep. But it, just learning how that works in terms of, like, self-care, it's been, like, super helpful in being able to recognise kind of transference and counter-transference. You know, when you're sitting down with someone and you just think you can actually recognise or you find yourself getting agitated. Yeah. And I'm yeah. like, oh, yeah. That's, you know, I'm not feeling agitated now because this person is annoying. Yeah. This is how they must be feeling. Like yes. that's that yes. kind of transference. They're, they're transferring what they feel onto me. Correct. And I guess that's as well that, that gut feeling that we're talking about before. Like there's yep. times where you walk out of a room and just think, like, I feel so heavy. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's how my, that's how they must be feeling. Like mm. they in a um, constant state. Like, oh, yeah. I've been counselling heaps, and, and I love it. Like for me, I've done all different sort of therapy stuff where, like, I was writing with different hands yeah. to use different sides of my brain. It was epic role play stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I always felt when I left, I'd weight off my shoulders. You know. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, I'd ha- happily admit mental health in the family. You know, happy to admit that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. and I mean, yeah, yeah, things like for nurses like EAP, like I cannot, 
like as nurses, we work in such a tough job. Yeah. And, you know, nurses need to look after nurses, you know, like yeah. let's got to have each other's backs. And EAP is an absolute godsend. Yeah. Um, and even like clinical supervision, not that it's a, a counseling no, but session, but it's a good place to kind of go and talk about your day at work or how your last week's been at work and just kind of get that off the chest and have an ex an external person just say, have, have you thought that, you know, of looking at it this way? Yeah. You know, it actually wasn't that bad. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, you're right. Because um, you're right. There is that transference even when you work with some people or, or a patient and they can be so, there can be this negativity or it could be like you listen to a yeah. story like, I do feel heavy because that person just told me that they've been abused or that person's had yeah. a really horrible upbringing. And that, that's, that's heavy. That is heavy stuff. Yeah. And that's the thing, like, I, like you, I'm a super positive person. I like to be surrounded by positive people. And there are times where I find myself, and it's good now, like my family pull me up on it, my mates pull me up on it. They're like, had a shit week at work. <laughs> <laughs> you are correct. Like, damn it. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, but isn't that um, nice that you have that a bit that your friends you you let your friends talk into you enough to pick you up on it? Yeah, yeah, it's great, and I mean, I guess it comes down to I I as well. I'm very open. I'm very honest, and if I haven't always been, um, yeah. but do try and let my closest mates know what's going on. Mm. You know? yeah, um and I think that's, that's, a, I mean, that's how I look after myself, just trying, like, keeping myself accountable. Yep. Yep. And so. you raised some points, I guess, you know, we talked about men's mental health um, and we're also just raising the point on suicide and depression. So you would see patients who are self-harmed, suicide, run me through yep. how Benny or how you would as a mental health clinician, what are you looking at with those sort of features? What do you commonly notice with suicide or depression or self-harm? Some of those things. Yeah. Uh, so I often find things, so self-harm and suicide attempts are yep. uh, categorised as two very different things. Okay. Um, so deliberate self-harm I look at as more of a kind of emotional dysregulation. So people coming in who are have these kind of extreme emotional swings or kind of, I don't want to say overreact, but I guess go from like zero to 100 with no in-between. Yeah, over anything and it's kind of like a build-up and they use self-harm as a way of releasing that pressure yeah so it's not that they want to end their life it's just that they need that kind of pressure the same way that other people would you know feel crap and then go and smash themselves trying to do like you know 10 one kilometer efforts at you know a three minute kilometers like yeah. that's they're smashing themselves because they need to release and it's a similar thing yeah um where suicide and suicidal ideation is i guess that plan or thought to end their life unfortunately it doesn't discriminate people in terms of like suicidal thinking and suicidal ideation we say um is you see people in all walks of life um, kind of coming in. Um, and again, like if I'm assessing someone, I'm, I want to kind of know, again, if they'll tell me kind of what their plan is. Yep. 
how long they've been thinking like this for is this a new thing um i always try and reassure them that the fact that they've come in and spoken to someone about it if they've come in on their own volition mm. is a really positive thing yeah. and that is like the first step kind of forward to to getting better i think there's lots of people that sit with it for years mm. and just kind of let that fester and i think for people to come in and speak to speak about it is a really great thing um but i mean i guess it's important to know how long they've been feeling like that for like i think if someone has because it can on both ends if someone has only been feeling like this for a week mm. then you're like they could be really impulsive and just go and do it yeah okay or try and do something um and then again if they've been thinking about it for years on one hand you've got to kind of commend them and be like you've you've been sitting on this for years and you've not done anything like that's you're awesome that's you're really awesome. good that's awesome but then on the other hand you're looking at they're obviously at the end of their tether yeah so um where is their breaking point like where is the point when they're going to go too far yeah or beyond that edge that is too far that's it are they going to sit on this for another you know five years or are they just going to go and and do something and i think going back to men men are typically more impulsive mm-hmm. um and will attempt to take their life in more lethal ways Which um then as a clinician yeah, yeah yeah so um women typically take overdoses yep. um or kind of try and cut themselves that's not to say that women don't do other things but statistically that's what it it kind of looks at yeah looks like sorry the most aggressive suicide i saw was from a woman um doing trauma yep but um and it was brutal but then yeah as you said before um overdoses i've seen a heap yeah um well i've i mean personal experience i've seen people in the emergency department as awful actually um it was one of those gut feeling ones Mm. young bloke came in not much older than me um relationship breakup and he was just really kind of nihilistic and not anhedonic but just like not enjoying much anymore but it was COVID. COVID. there was this was just after the first lockdown so he lost kind of steady employment um lost his girlfriend i guess lost his role um and for men in particular that loss of role because there is so much kind of stigma around men needing to be you know strong providers yeah. you know having everything kind of um and something just didn't sit right with me yep well i may i think you need to come to hospital um and he agreed to do so so i didn't because he wanted to come in mm. um, i was happy for him to come in voluntary um and i guess this is something that i probably should have brought up before with the scheduling yeah in mental health just because someone is voluntary in the hospital and voluntarily wants to be there doesn't mean that they can just leave okay they still need to actually sit down and speak with someone to say kind of explain why they want to leave um because there's a reason that they're there in the first place so just because they're voluntary doesn't mean that there aren't any risks it just means that they're you know they they're willing to be there essentially yeah um so yeah so i this bloke stayed um 
later that afternoon he said he wanted to leave mm-hmm. i wasn't on shift um so someone else saw him yeah. said yep he can go um and then that night he went and jumped in front of a train wow so yeah and like they're the things that kind of stick with you and i think yeah that's where that gut feeling you know you're like oh no nah, this isn't none of this is setting up but it must be tough the loss. yeah it's i mean it's not pleasant but no and it's such a hard thing is it and hindsight's this beautiful thing isn't it that we wish we yeah. had that we don't have you know yeah like the patients that we send home from ed and then suddenly they have an, a dissection and they die and the yeah person, when i saw them they were I felt like that's in my judgment. That, yeah, that, you know, and that's a tough thing, isn't it? To yeah, to look at. Um, I guess you said some things in relation to suicide. What things do you ask people? Do you say to them, "Hey, do you have a plan? What What is your plan to to kill yourself, or what is your plan to?" Yeah. Um, look, I, I see. It's a really touchy subject, and yeah. to be honest with you, unlike substance use, people are not very open with telling you what their plan is. I think because they they know that pretty much if they tell you what their plan is, then they can't go home. Yeah, um, yeah. so people are quite guarded about that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, I think weirdly enough for me in terms of like level of risk, people who come in and say they've got multiple plans, yep. I don't consider to be as risky as the people of just, that have just got one concrete solid plan. I think if you're thinking multiple things and you, you're already a bit ambivalent about it, where when you've got the person that comes in because they've been Googling like specifics about a certain plan, that's the alarm bells start ringing for me. Yeah. So if someone comes in and they've had, um, you know, they've done, they've had previous kind of lethal or like high lethality overdoses, yep. um, then that is, alarming um as well like looking at their medication list if they're on medications that kind of i know they've in the past have had high lethality overdoses and you look at their meds and you're like oh this person's on amitriptyline like they'll yeah if you overdose on that then you're not going to have a good time so um i guess and as well kind of access if someone comes in and says they've got a suicide plan and their plan is to shoot themselves. In Australia, it's as simple as being, do you have access to a gun? Mm. Like, no, but I can probably find one. And it's like, well, 20-year-old kid who lives in Erskineville in a, with his parents, it's the chances of him being able to find a gun are quite slim. Yep. <laughs> not to say it's impossible, but in terms of suicide plans, it's not the most solid, concrete plan. Mm. Um, it runs in the family suicide like I, i've seen like i you know some people that and it's so sad like the the dad had killed himself the son had done it on the anniversary the yeah. other son had done it on the other anniversary of of the same same date yeah yeah i mean i think it's there's definitely kind of uh some sort of uh, i guess it is her, i don't want to say hereditary but I, I mean, they talk, I've, there's been studies where I'll talk about kind of like a suicide gene. Um, but I think it comes down to more kind of environment and exposure versus 
a specific kind of like biological desire to end your life um yeah, no i think that's more of yeah yeah and also so, the date becomes a very significant date yeah and again like i mean the father's suffering from depression and you've got these two young blokes that have now lost their like male role model their mother would be understandably distressed mm. and then you just kind of again it's that loss like they've got a loss of their father they're then i guess a loss of role because they're now no longer the like you know the eldest son is now no longer the eldest son he's that whole man of the house mentality mm. um and it just kind of adds this extra pressure and yeah it's it is i guess it's a, a vicious cycle of and it would be very interesting doing your job you get from one end of the scale you've got the girlfriend you know and i've seen this the girlfriend in the car who's said she wants to kill kill herself because her boyfriend broke up with her to yeah. someone who's legitimately tied you know a belt around their neck and the dad's come home just at the right time and and got him down yeah. very big contrast of yeah demographics mate like yeah and that's it i mean it is because the girlfriend or the boyfriend who's been dumped can also be really impulsive and yeah. you know things like paracetamol overdoses yep. people don't realize how lethal they can be yep. um and they'll do these things as a you know i guess like a cry for help but not realizing it, it can end your life like welcome to hepatic level failure mate you're out like you need to transfer. yeah yeah that's it so yeah and that's it the long-term effects i've seen quite a few people that have taken these kind of paracetamol overdoses not kind of huge ones but big enough to land them you know for them needing a knack infusion yeah and yep. after years of doing that they are they're you know their liver's done yeah. it's well people that take seroquel overdoses okay mm. so quetiapine um is an antipsychotic um it's prescribed off label a lot by gps at like 25 to 50 milligrams for sleep yep because it is quite sedating from about 300 milligrams to kind of a thousand it's used as an antipsychotic and mood stabilizer mm -hmm. but it can prolong the um qt wave interval yes so people who take overdoses of it i've seen have had some serious cardiac issues following multiple overdoses again not knowing they'll take it think it's you know not going to be too harmful or they want to end their life they do it again do it again and then they're you know lifelong cardiac issue I was seeing something, there's been that kind of movement on social media at the moment about, um, I think it's construction workers being high up there in terms of suicide, um, like higher suicide rates for construction workers, um, which kind of piqued my interest. So I went and had a look and yeah. the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare still lists, I think it's um, vets as number one, the highest risk of suicide um followed by female doctors followed by male nurses so wow. yeah so like kind of long i guess long-term treatment for suicidal ideation medication is typically not always indicated okay. um so you can start uh, i mean things like ssri so um the 
antidepressants. Yes. Often a, a side effect of antidepressants can be an increase in suicidal oh, thinking. As well, for people who are depressed, kind of like truly depressed, I would say maybe like month to two months of them starting an antidepressant is a really high risk period for suicide. Okay. Um, it's that kind of double-edged sword where they get better or they get well enough to recognise how low they were mm. and they're motivated enough to not want to get back there and they're still feeling suicidal so they'll then have the energy to try and do something to end their life. But in terms of suicidal ideation and in, in the kind of average person who's not kind of I guess, acutely depressed, we would look at kind of therapy. So I'd recommend kind of psychologists. Yeah. Um, so in terms of moving these people through the ED, yep. um, RPA ED, where I am, the mental health team, there's, they use kind of solution-focused therapy. Yeah. Um, so it's very much like a here and now. So it doesn't look at the broader kind of reasoning as to kind of what's going on. It's like, what can we do right now? to help you um, and kind of working through that then and there to then get them out of the hospital and into a into see a, seeing a psychologist for kind of longer term dbt um, to kind of change that pattern of thinking yeah and um yeah which is skills they, they can then use for the rest of their life yeah yeah so pre-morbid trauma so kind of look at like complex ptsd Yep. Um, and PTSD as associated with, yeah, trauma. Um, and that trauma can be, and the thing is, it's like trauma is a brutal thing where it's so individualised for people that people can experience those kind of like that response to trauma for something that you wouldn't consider to be that traumatic or I wouldn't consider to be that traumatic, but for them it's you know, the end of the world kind of thing yep. versus other people I see and you read their history, you get their history and it's just think like, my gosh, like how, like you're in the most resilient person in the world. Like they're, you know, they're there because they're like, oh, I've got some suicidal ideation. And then you go into their history and you just think like, and it's taken you 35 years to get here. Like how? Like that's insane. <laughs> um so trauma definitely plays a big role mm. in people's present kind of mental state. And I think that, again, like psychology is the best or psychotherapy even for kind of like really complex PTSD is the best. Do you find yourself day to day like, you, you know, I mean, not now in COVID, but you walk down the street, you meet someone and does Benny's head go, I think that person's got, do you, like, is that hard? Oh, you're at a party, you meet in the yeah. girlfriend, you're like, holy moly, someone get me a, you know? Yeah, it's absolutely, my wife does it all the time. She's like, seriously, you need to stop. Like, it's stop <laughs> analysing everyone. I have this weird thing where, even you know i'll be walking down the street and you'll clock someone on, across the road like 100 meters down and i can see my wife look at me and just think she's thinking don't do it don't don't and that person across the road and walk straight to me and just start chatting she's like honestly what is it with you yeah so what, do you, uh, 
you know, you're able to sort of make people feel comfortable? I, I guess so. Like, I guess it's when you're surrounded by people who are, as I said before, in their, like, the worst day of their life. Yeah. I guess you've got to kind of present yourself in a way that kind of helps alleviate some of that anxiety. And I guess it, I mean, it must radiate to other people because... <laughs> And I think what's cool is you must be, you must present a sense of like uh, safety for people. You know, you're a safe yeah. and a sense that like you're, you're looking out for people in your community, mate. And I think that's brilliant. You know, that people feel safe enough to come and have a chat with you. I know yeah. when you and your wife are walking the dog, she's like, I just want to get around the block and walk the dog. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I think that's brilliant. I think if more of us saw people the way they wanted to be seen, we'd have a yeah. problem living in. Yeah, that's it. And I mean, that's the goal is to make people feel better. And that's why I do it because I genuinely think that nine times out of 10, my intervention, whether it's just a short, brief conversation or, you know, a two hour long kind of sit down, I like to think that they're better off for having been, not me specifically, but having been able to see a mental health clinician. And I think if I can deliver that to them and provide them with as you said safety and comfort Mm. and i mean that's why i go back to work every day i mean i think it comes down to like just being empathetic Uh, i mean and i don't think i know a nurse that isn't empathetic so that's really great um but just being able to uh, i mean i think i guess one thing would be is all nurses need to learn if they don't already how to manage and alleviate kind of ed related stress and anxiety Mm. um so it's you know just kind of being able to have that brief empathetic conversation to just alleviate any immediate stress Mm. and just kind of reassure which i mean given the times it doesn't always happen there's people everywhere but i think when it does it's certainly recognized by by the patient so and even i notice it when i come in and they're like oh you know john over there versus the bloke in bed three yeah or there's there's one of yours in consult room three can you see them and it's like sorry one of mine like come on just let's have some professional courtesy there but also respect for the the patient who's in Australia. What would you be saying to anyone to close anyone out there that um wants to become a mental health nurse or wants to get into mental health medicine or wants to do anything in relation to mental health do it (laughs) give it a crack there's i mean they're now running kind of for nurses transition programs where it's six months mental health six months um general nursing so you can give them both a crack you can mental health is one of those things i see quite a lot of nurses come in like later in life they've gone and they've done the the general side of things you know We recently had a a woman start with us who's been a paediatric nurse for, I think it was something like 25 years, and she just one day thought, do you know what? I'll give mental health nursing a go. And I think it's mental health nursing is one of those things that I think most nurses don't realise that they do every day at work anyway. Yeah. Every conversation you have with a patient to kind of, alleviate their stress about their their physical health or every conversation you have with a family to kind of talk about treatment options and you are doing you're pulling bits and pieces of 
mental health into that and you're being sensitive to it. And I think that's great. So, I mean, in saying that, there is a mental health, like there's a statewide mental health line. Um, so 1-800-011-511. If you are anywhere in New South Wales and you or someone you're with needs mental health support, give that number a call, put you through to a mental health clinician and they'll be able to guide you in the right direction. Right, so that's great. Yeah. Full disclosure, I used to be the manager of the one here, so. <laughs> I get fucked on every call. Dude, you're a legend. Um, oh, thanks for your time, dude, too. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You are a proper. You can also follow me, um, edjam underscore podcast, on Instagram as well. Um, and thank you to everyone who does listen. Remember that any advice on the ED Jam should be taken over your local medical practitioner. Um, thank you, everybody, and have a good day. Bye.